I hope he knows the difference. Okay. Well, hey, we're here to talk about parenting, and I'm going to do most of the talking here up front because I want to take you through a few passages of Scripture and kind of give the lay of the land in the Bible and give us some framework for talking these things through as the lights come up. And um, so I, what I did with the worksheet is I tried to just lay out, you know, even every cross-reference I'm going to give here at the beginning, so you don't even have to write those down. You just know we're moving through those, and we're going to move through a lot of material really quick, and then we'll be able to talk about the practicals of each section, and then we're going to open it up for questions, as you know, all right? So here's the, the key verse that I always quote, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It's printed on your worksheet there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And of course, fathers will take the lead in parenting. Doesn't mean fathers, not mothers. Of course, it's fathers and mothers. We all are not to provoke our children to anger, but to bring them up, which is a team effort as the lights go down. Uh, in the discipline, there's the first word, and the instruction of the Lord. Those are both underlined on your worksheet, are they not? Discipline, okay? If you take this word, do a word study on it, you'll find it means to chasten. We don't use that word much anymore. If you want a modern word for the word chasten, it means to spank or to reprove. It may not be that it's physical in many contexts, but it is to reprove, to make a clear um, uh, redirection of that child. The word we use for that is correct, and I say we use for that just in our discussions with others about parenting. We say a big part of your job is to correct your kids. The other word here, instruction, without going into all the Greek language and all the rest, it means to admonish, a strong admonition, or to exhort, or to put it more mildly, to prompt, which is uh, the word we use for that, is direct, to direct our kids. We've got to correct them when they're going the wrong way. That's what it means to be disciplining them, and to instruct them, to direct them, to coach them, to admonish them, to prompt them in the right way. So we stop them from going the wrong way, we push them in the right direction, uh, and, and that's our framework, correction and direction, okay? Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, to start out thinking through discipline, which is correction. Uh, oh, by the way, that last passage right there, those last three words are important, uh, of the Lord. Uh, there are things that the world will not discipline for that we will because we're working within the sphere or the realm of what the Lord has said instructing them and prompting them and coaching them. You'll hear a lot tonight from us about things we're going to coach our kids to do and the world will not. So in the Lord, very important, but we don't have time to point that out. I just did. All right, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline to speak first about correction here. Now we're talking about correction. Or be weary of his reproof. There's a parallel word. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Okay, uh, this is a great, great set of statements that we can glean a lot from. Let's just glean a minimum amount from and say this. This is a picture that we can work forward or backward. In other words, from God to us or from us to God. Either way, we should be able to identify with both parts of this verse. And this reminds us that, the, that God is a disciplinarian. He engages in discipline. And we shouldn't grow weary of it, which assumes it's going to happen a lot in our Christian life or in this case, the Old Testament, and just being a God-fearing, God-following person, you're going to get a lot of discipline. Don't grow weary of it. It's part and parcel of what God is going to do with us, his children. And then he makes the compare. Oh, let's make the, uh, let's, let's make the, pull, pull the motive out here. His motive, obviously, in this text is, is love. He disciplines those he says he loves. There's the connection. Discipline is there because you love. And he says, as a father, loving parents, uh, would would discipline the son in whom he delights. 
In other words, we have, again, the motive of discipline for Christian parents is because we love them. So correction, big part of our task, just like God is a corrector of our behavior when we're going down the wrong road. So let's think this through. God is a disciplinarian. A couple verses there, I wrote, wrote them down if you were asleep when I said that all those Proverbs there on the right side of your page, they're all there. You don't need to write these references down. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28 and 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? If someone takes a flaming hibachi and hands it to you, said, would you take this to the backyard? I don't know what you're doing with it in the house. Maybe you're in the front yard. Take it to the backyard. You got a flaming hibachi. You wouldn't put it up next to your chest like you would a pillow and walk to the backyard. That would be stupid because you will get burned. Or if there's hot coals and it's not, you know, a Tony Robbins seminar or something, uh, you wouldn't walk on those because your feet would get scorched, right? No one would do that. Uh, and then he makes the moral comparison and he says, so he who goes into his neighbor's wife, none who touches her will go unpunished. Now, we're making the comparison here about cause and effect. There's cause and effect in nature where you touch a hot stove and you get burnt and you have pain from that. And that's the analogy here with, with fire and coals. And so it is when you cross a moral line with God, God says you're going to be punished. There's going to be a cause and effect relationship. This is the picture of discipline. God does it in nature. He does it in our bodies. He does it in our morality. That's how God deals with us. Again, the motive is love. Expand that. Flipping it around in a very dramatic way. Proverbs 1, 29 through 33. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, who has promised to discipline his children, uh, and would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof, therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their way. They're going to they're reap what they've sown. And, and they'll have their fill of their own devices. Keep reading. For the simple are killed by their turning away. Okay, so there's bad things when you keep going down the wrong path. And the complacency of fools, saying, well, I don't think I really should do that. This is okay. It's going to destroy them. But whoever listens to me, here's the carrot that shows God loves us, will dwell secure, will be at ease without dread of disaster. God says, I'm trying to correct you for your own good. And because I love you, I'm not going to let you go down that path. We often talk about God loving you just the way you are, and I often say he loves you too much to leave you the way you are because he has to turn your path from sin to righteousness in all the areas that we continue to learn about in our sanctification and development in Christ because those ways end in difficulty and pain and consequence that hurts us. And so God says, turn, listen to me, I'll discipline you so that you will have, in this case, secure uh, ease, security, ease, and you'll not have dread of disaster. Now, this is applied throughout Proverbs to parents. If you're a loving parent, you're going to discipline your kids. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Now, you're saying, well, this is crazy. What kind of verse is that? Well, I wouldn't set my heart on putting him to death. This is a rhetorical statement. It's a, it's, it reveals that when you're not willing to discipline your son, it must be that you want to put him to death. Well, no, I, I don't want to put him to death. Well, if you don't discipline him, that's the only hope you have. Because if you don't discipline him, the assumption here comically is made, it's as though you want him to die. Why? Because the end of his way, left unchecked and uncorrected, uh, is death. As the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And I suppose when you think big S in terms of my Adamic sin or the sin that I have inherited in Adam, death, second death, big D, I get that. But so it is, as it says in Galatians 6, we reap what we sow 
If we sow to the flesh, we reap from the flesh corruption. In other words, every sin we commit has some kind of negative consequence. Every payment of sin is some form of death, some kind of corruption, some kind of difficulty. And so that pattern lets me know that I'm going to be a parent that must correct because if I love my kid, I'm going to do it. As Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whoever's, whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, just to continue with this and to get into a little bit more detail. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, now I just hate the fact that the English translation of the word Shabbat, if you've ever heard me teach on discipline, we have to talk about the word Shabbat because it is disappointingly translated into a word that at least when I think of it, I think of a piece of rebar that goes into cement that looks like some, you know, 15-pound bar that you would smack someone with and kill them. That's not what a Shabbat is. A Shabbat is used in three different ways in the New Testament. One, it's used of the small stick that the shepherd carries, not the big staff that he carries, but the rod is the stick. Uh, it's also used of a mom in Isaiah who's grinding cumin in her kitchen with a stick. Uh, and the third use is the king who has a gilded one with gold and he sits in his throne. And that one's translated scepter, that stick in his hand that's you know bejeweled and, and gilded. That is a small stick much like the thing that you might use to stir the fudge in your kitchen. And that's the stick that's in view when it says, if you strike your child with that Shabbat, right, he will not die. It doesn't mean keep on beating him. Just trust me, you're not going to kill him. That's not the idea of this verse. The idea of the verse is if you are willing to correct him with the Shabbat, right, then you are going to make sure that your kid does not go down that path of death. He will not die. You're going to... Re refrain from some form of death, some corruption. If you strike him with the Shabbat, you will save his soul from Sheol, which is the picture in the Old Testament of the realm of the dead. He'll stay alive. This is Hebrew parallelism, death, Sheol. So I see a passage like this, and now I'm getting more detail. If I love my child, I recognize that I need to, at some point, redirect him, much like a, uh, an animal is redirected with a goad by poking him and saying, ow, oh, not that way, go the other way. We do it with our kids all the time. Uh, we try to somehow inflict some consequence that gives them a sense that this is not good. We do it from the time that they're born. And the Proverbs say that's an act of love. Because if you weren't to do that, Proverbs 13, 14, 13, 24 rather, whoever spares it, if your Shabbat never touches your child, then you hate your son. You don't love him. But he who loves his son is diligent, consistent to discipline him. And you'll have to say to him what the Lord says to us, don't grow weary of my discipline. It's because I love you and I don't want you to reap the consequence of wayward behavior. Proverbs 29, 15, and 17, the rod, there's the word again, Shabbat, uh, and reproof, that's the infliction of consequence and the verbal correction, reproof, it gives wisdom. But a child left to himself, if you spare the Shabbat, uh, you become a, he becomes ashamed to his mother. And, and actually, you could walk through our kids' ministry and figure out who spared the Shabbat, and, and you can say, how embarrassing if that were my kid. And you could line them up, basically, I know there's temperaments out there, based on what kind of loving, diligent, consistent discipline they've had, and that bears fruit even from the youngest ages. A kid left to himself, if you never corrected your kid, your kid you'd be ashamed of at some point uh, in your life, or probably sooner rather than later. Discipline your son, verse 17 says, for he will give you rest. He will delight 
he will be, give delight to your heart. And we can talk more about that in detail when we get there. Now, components of biblical correction. These are three things I think I have you fill out on the worksheet, do I not? All right. And did I put anything next to that? It was just one, two, three, right? One, two, three. All right. If you look at this and what we've just learned in Proverbs really quickly here in this 100-mile-an-hour overview, we clearly have to reprove him. There has to be an expression of the displeasure of what they have done that is wrong, okay? And seeing that in the Lord is going to deal with things that the world won't deal with, it certainly will include the things that most worldly parents want, and that is being obedient to mom and dad. So whatever the sin is, whatever it is that they have done that is incorrect, it is something that is immoral, it is something unbiblical, it is something disrespectful, there has to be a clear expression of displeasure at that. There has to be a connection. If you don't know what you're getting disciplined for, uh, it's no good. You have to provide a clear rebuke, right? Don't do this, do that. Turn from this and start going this way. Providing that clear rebuke, they need to clearly know what it is, and then there needs to be an enforcement of a painful consequence, okay? Now, we want to pause at this point and talk about some practicals as it relates to biblical correction. And we could teach for hours on this, and we have, on how we live these out in even beginning with a toddler strapped to a changing table who won't sit still, uh, you won't lay still to get changed, uh, all the way to you know, the teenager who wasn't home by his curfew because he's out with his license and coming home late. So we know that most of your kids uh, are, are younger, uh, if you have kids at all. And so we can start there and talk through some of that. Let's talk about biblical correction a little bit. Yeah, well, as he said, this needs to start from the very beginning, and it's good to have these three up because I think that when we talk about what this actually looks like, you're going to see that these three elements show up in a practical application of it. Um, first of all, we have to start with the very youngest kids. I know that, um, oh, how do I say this? We, uh, we think that Start and our, I will help you. <laughs> I think we assume that our kids don't know better when they're really young. But um, I would like to say that that's probably really not true. Because when you walk into their room, even an infant knows you and wouldn't have the same response to you that they would have to a stranger. So they know enough to know you. They know a lot more than you probably anticipate them knowing. And I know we like to make the excuse that they don't know better yet, so I'll just let it go for a year or two. Let me stop you. Even your first week of life as an infant, your kid learns the principle of discipline. And what I often say, even though we put those nice little wraps over their hands so they don't gouge themselves, I say, take, 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 the, take the little things off, whatever you call them, right? Because here's the thing. They eventually learn that sticking your finger in your eye hurts. And see, our little geniuses there, though they can't control their bladder yet, they recognize that hurts, I shouldn't do it. And it doesn't take long for any child to recognize even how they control their own limbs. There are certain things you don't do because there is a painful response and that needs to stop. Trust me, God is already disciplining your kid from the first day, right? From the very beginning. And so to say, well, I'm not going to start discipline until they get older, Big mistake right out of the gate because God's already at work disciplining them and you can begin from the very beginning to enforce some consequences for behavior and they will learn that behavior is wrong. I won't do it. Right. So for, I, I would say probably your first encounter with discipline is going to be teaching your children to sleep on their own. 
I mean, that's the first thing you have to do. If their needs are all taken care of, if you know they're safe, if they've been changed, if they've been fed, and it's time for them to sleep, um, we need to start right there figuring out how are we going to discipline them. And discipline at that point probably is not going to be the painful consequence of you, you know, using the wooden spoon on them because they're little, but you withholding your affection from them in the sense of you showing up in their room all night long every time they call. That's what I mean. I don't mean that you're being mean to them, although I guess sometimes it feels that way, but what eventually happens is that they learn to soothe themselves and they learn to quiet themselves. So see, discipline starts much earlier than you think. You think it's when you hit the terrible twos, but it starts at the very beginning of you training them, for instance, to sleep on their own. And obviously I'm not saying that you don't feed your baby every two hours through the night, of course you do. But as things progress and your baby is a little tiny bit older, you're not gonna go in there every 20 minutes to take care of them after you know everything is safe and that your baby's okay and that everything's taken care of. It's um, not hard to notice that your kid realizes he rules the world, right, by even what he can do in the middle of the night to get people into his room. Absolutely. And once he recognizes, and for our kids, depending on their temperament, sometimes it takes a lot longer for them to learn they don't rule the world, uh, but they, re they realize, if I do this, this won't happen. But I, I did this last night and it happened. I got what I wanted if I did this. Well, listen, if, if we recognize, here's the check marks on what we've got, and they keep doing it, they learn this isn't working anymore. And your kids are smart enough, even as tiny infants, to know if this doesn't work anymore, I quit. And they will quit, right. whether it's you know, demanding mom every night or whatever it might be. Right, so that's where it starts, is sleep training. And then um, for us, the next thing was the changing table, as he said, you know? And they were, I think, seven months old when they were fighting the changing table and just saying, no, don't do that, wasn't enough. They got the clear warning, we weren't just like smack, you know. They got that we, no, don't do that. And then the next time there was a consequence and we started with just a tiny, tiny little slap on the thigh and then they look at you startled and you explain, here's where you get that clear rebuke. No, you don't turn over on the changing table, see? So you've expressed your displeasure, you've given them a painful consequence and you've been clear, this is the problem. And you're obviously not gonna have a 20 minute lecture with your seven month old. But you've said, no, lay still, or whatever it is, you, whatever your words are. So it starts with things like that. Um, another thing when they're real small, which a lot of your kids are, is we didn't allow them to grab everybody's necklace, earrings, or glasses. Because every single one of your children, someone, you hand it to them and you know the first thing they do is grab something on that person. Um, I didn't wear ponytails, so they couldn't grab my hair. I taught them not to grab my hair which all we did was we would take their little hand and we would just squeeze it. Say, no, don't pull. Or no, don't touch grandma's glasses. Or no, you can't pull those earrings. And when a squeeze, That's all it took. When a squeeze on the hand didn't work, there's a great little piece of anatomy that God created between the shoulder and the neck there that Spock, in his passing, we'll give him credit for this. Uh, just a nice, it, all it takes is a nice firm pinch there and it's great to watch even the strongest, strongest-willed, toughest little kid, whether it's Matthew or John, uh, squeeze that and just have them go, why right? are you doing that to me? They that, know. That really hurts. Right. And if they don't stop, it's a little bit harder, and it's a little bit harder until they get the point that this is not something I should continue doing because it hurts me. So see, discipline starts right at the beginning. Don't wait till they're older. 
Okay, don't wait till they're toddling before you get there. Um, but as far as the next step in the in the thing here of discipline is is those that are toddling, those that are a little bit older. Um, you need to state your desires clearly to them in the sense in simple, not 20-minute lectures, but what you want them to do. They need to know what you expect. And, um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about what to do when they don't do what you're expecting, but as much as we possibly could, we, what we called, we said yes as much as we could because we knew we were going to have to say no a lot. So, you know, when they wanted to go run in the puddles in a safe place in your backyard, it didn't matter that they were getting all wet. You know, is one piece of candy after lunch really a big deal? You know, is, is you know, five extra minutes to be with you reading a book instead of jumping into bed really that big a deal? Unless that's what you do every night, then it is a big deal, okay? But if it's a special thing, we tried to say yes when we could, okay? Not worrying about if they're getting, you know, mud on their clothes or whatever. It doesn't matter. So try to say yes when you can. And the reason Carlin is saying all this is because we were often branded as the Nazi parents we recognize because <laughs> we disciplined a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guarantee you the idea of discipline and disciplining a lot bears fruit so quickly that it doesn't take very long at all to reap the benefits of children that are obedient. And I know they think, well, you're such Nazi parents, those little tiny babies, you know, they're, they're going to be so restrained and they're so introverted and they'll sit around with bow ties in the corner at church and no one, they can't carry on a conversation. Clearly, we didn't create those kinds of children, but we did create the kinds of children right out of the gate who knew that when I crossed the line that mom and dad thought was important and there were several of them, there would be consequences. Right. We also didn't make a ton of rules. We had large sweeping rules, things like, you know, respect authority. Because that can be the babysitter, the teacher at church, mom, whatever. That, that's a big, broad one. Um, things like, you know, having self-control. That means, you know, you don't go over and push someone down because they took your toy. But we didn't go to no hitting, no, we did broad things. Do you see the difference? So, um, you know, we would, we would pick things that were big things like... Um, you know, self-control could mean, for instance, we didn't allow them to have tantrums because they were not controlling themselves. Um, so we would, that would be something they would be disciplined for. So broad, broad rules and only a few, okay? Respecting authority also was obey mom and dad because that's a big one that's respect authority. So we had broad rules, but then what do you do when a rule actually isn't followed? I mean, it's time when the, you know, the, the hammer's got to go down. Okay, well, there's these three things that we've got up here, and I'm going to show you how you would do a discipline session with your child. First of all, I said, you know, you've made your desires very clear. They know what the rules are. The rules are big and broad, but they know what they are, okay? Secondly, you're going to make sure that you, you know, we usually gave them one warning. I think the, the problem with a lot of parents is we give them five warnings instead of one warning. But, you know, when they would, for instance, we'd say, come here, and they wouldn't, we'd say, mom said, come here. But that was their one. And then there would be discipline. A discipline session is always done in private. It was a time when we obviously told them we're not happy with what you did. And when they were little, we would give them the clear rebuke. You didn't come to mom. But once they started speaking, they had to tell us why they were being disciplined. Or there would be more discipline if they could not express to us what the problem was. 
And we would take them into their bedroom, the bathroom, someplace private. We'd talk about what they did wrong. And then we would have already decided ahead of time how many, we used a wooden spoon, uh, how many swats that was. You know, it was usually one or two, unless it was a big one, by, like lying at our house. Lying has only happened a couple times at our house. And that's because you got massive, you know, swats for that one, because God hates lying. And, uh, but the rest of them were one or two, depending on what it was. We knew ahead of time, so mom's not out of control, just going crazy. You're controlled. You know you're going to give two swats for this. Um, and then after you'd give the swats, we would talk about it. We would hug. We would pray with them. And we would ask them to say, I'm sorry. And we would say, I forgive you. Not it's okay because they've done something wrong, but I forgive you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. And that was our pattern even in their interactions with each other and problems. I'm sorry, I forgive you. Then there was the hug, the prayer, and then we had to walk out of the room and hold no grudges. I'm not going to make my kid pay for the rest of the day because they did that thing. And uh, I had to then let it go, or Mike had to let it go. Just because they said the words, it wasn't enough. Just like we weren't willing to say the words, I forgive you, if we didn't mean it. So we want authenticity in everything they said. They couldn't just rotely say the words when they were little. And just for the sake of time, we'll have to speed up a little bit of this. But when mm. we had the wooden spoon, if you're picturing a kid that, that wouldn't affect them, we graduated up mm -hmm. to uh, a wooden paddle that was about the size of one of those paddles with a ball on it, only I made sure mine was a lot thicker than that. Um, so it would do the job because when at some point the wooden spoon didn't work in that it didn't, it didn't adequately bring displeasure and, and, and pain to our child to get the point, then, you know, I built a custom-made, uh, with a nice piece of finished uh, wood, a, a paddle that worked and did the job beautifully. Right. And, but if you recognize the kids are going to be spanked at such a young age that it, 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 it goes away at a certain point. And the point of going from uh, just a squeeze somewhere on their hand or on their shoulder that, that actually causes them pain and they make the connection to the spoon, I mean, that one I think is pretty obvious where you realize you need that spoon uh, on their rear end. Uh, but then you know that when they get to the place where that no longer brings a tear, it doesn't bring a sense of, of contrition, well, then we went to the paddle. And then the paddle went away when it got to the time when I would give my kids a choice and I would say, I'm going to say no dessert tonight and you're going to bed early or you can get four swats with the paddle. And I did that diagnostically at a certain point in their lives to see when they would switch over to say, I'll take the paddle. As soon as they started taking the paddle, then I said, great, no more paddle. And then we were always giving the other one. Because when that other one was a more painful consequence for them, that's what I prefer because I need the discipline to be unpleasant. That was what Hebrews chapter 12 says. If we had more time, this was a yeah. multi-session thing. We'd go to the passage of the scripture that show yeah. this is exactly what God says he does to us. He, he employs unpainful, unpleasant circumstances in our lives to get our attention and to get us to make the connection between moral behavior and consequence. Right. Now, you know, just I know we have to move on, but stuff like they do this always when you're at grandma's house or at the grocery store because they're smart. And they know much more than you think they do. And they get that you're going to be in this pressed point of, how do I do this? Grandma's sitting right next to me. Um, you always have to take them out and do it privately. Go to your car. Sit in the back seat. You have to do it. If it's totally impossible, I mean, I left 
carts full of groceries at the grocery store, went out to my car, came back afterwards and bought the groceries. Um, but you got to do it. If you don't do it, they'll learn that when they're at grandma's, they can get away with everything. And this is when they're so young, they can't keep the connection between the problem and the consequence. Right. Of course, when they get a little bit older, yes. You know, and, and more of the discipline needed to come from dad. There's yes. no problem with that 1950s line, wait till your father gets home. Yep. And I think that's a great thing when they can see the, you know, in a few hours they can recognize, I know why I'm being disciplined because of what I did five hours ago or three hours ago. And at that point, we started, I started a little tally mark on the whiteboard. This is how many things you did wrong today. And they had to be able to articulate, why do you have five and your brother has one? You know, because we had one that always had five and one that had one. And, uh, You'll have to figure you know, out who's who. Yeah. And then I got to throw in the strong-willed kid because a lot of you say, and I bet half the questions for the number are, but I have a strong-willed kid. We did too. It means that you have to be more resolute. It means you have to be more patient. It means you have to be more consistent. Because if your strong-willed child gets the best of you, trust me, they're going to be an adult that doesn't have this themselves under control. They're going to be the ones who lose the jobs and make bad relationship choices and stuff. You have to teach them, even if they're harder than the others, that you're not going to give up on it. You're going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, and you're going to be consistent with them. And that's when I got Mike involved, because I had a four-year-old, well, before that, but especially when he turned four, something happened, and he just started like, he would run away from me, he would laugh in my face, he would say, you don't hurt me, mommy, when I would spank him. He would put his hands back there. He would, you know, the whole thing. And then Mike would come home from work. And sometimes I had to do the tally if he couldn't come home from work. And that's when dad took over all the discipline. He was four. And from then on, he did it. So don't say if you have a strong-willed child, you can't do this. You can. Just keep doing it. Get dad more involved. Sorry, dad. But you need, they respond to you differently. You need to step in and do it, and I mean. And I do think sometimes people think, oh, you, you really didn't have that strong-willed job. I wish <laughs> there was a videotape to show just how strong-willed oh one of our kids is. And even with, you know, well, are your kids, I just think God gave us one with extreme special needs, you know, who, who you know, okay. brain surgery and back surgery and you know, paralyzed, and all the issues that you don't even see. I guarantee you don't know a, you know, a, you don't know a quarter of what Stephanie goes through every day. God's given us that, I think, in part to make sure that we, in our teaching, uh, recognize the full spectrum of not only one of the strongest-willed kids ever born in Orange County, perhaps. But he's going to do great things for the Lord. I he hope has that so. Mm, spirit. I sure hope so. And I trust he's going to. All right, we need to plow ahead because we have so much to cover. <laughs> they uh, asked, "Are you giving personal illustrations?" We're like, "No." Did they only ask of you, that? you. Yes, they did. They didn't ask Who's me Who's going to get the illustrations? I'm like. Well, I can, I can do that all night long. Uh, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. There's our passage. Discipline, we've dealt with quickly. You can ask questions about that if you want. I'm sure there'll be questions. And then instruction, to admonish, to exhort, to prompt, to direct them. Here's the only passage in the New Testament, as I've got down on your worksheet there, about Christ's childhood. And I mean that not in terms of his infancy, but his childhood. Luke 2:52, where Luke just summarizes, and he says, And Jesus increased, here are the things now, in wisdom in stature, and in favor with two people, with God, his Father, and with man, his fellow man. So I just want to take those three things and think, okay, wisdom certainly deals with the application, but it deals with the grasping of truth and the principles. So let's talk about the mind. Uh, stature, of course, deals with his body. He grew up as a normal kid and got, you know, 
went through puberty and all the rest, body, and then favor. That's the issue of his heart was right before God, and his heart and his actions were right before men. So those three things, let's cover them in this order. We'll talk about the mind first, we'll talk about the heart second, and talk about the body third, just in terms uh, of our outline here. So let's talk about the first one. Uh, direct your kid's mind. I do think I made you fill that in, right, that word. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Uh, I certainly want our kids to develop their mind. God gave them a mind. We want them to use it, and we want them to do the best they can with what God's given them. And just like you, if you have more than one kid, your kid's capacity in his mind, they're all different. Uh, I realize that some can go further than others in that regard. But uh, we want to talk first about the most important thing to get in their mind, and that is the Bible. We have to get the Bible in their thinking from the time they are tiny. And uh, one thing I felt so strongly about this that I actually wrote, most of you know this, is a book called uh, Bible Survey for Kids. It's, it's a student workbook, and then there's this teacher's guide. And so from the time that they were really, really young, probably younger than I would even recommend for this program, although these are older pictures because we really should start taking pictures, you know, Stephanie would be there doing her Bible survey for kids, and we had our whiteboard set up. If you've been through the program or if not, there's a whiteboard, and then there's the chart that we build on the, on the uh, bulletin board. And, of course, just to go way back, of course, John went through the same thing, and then this rebel here went through the same thing. Hey! Yeah. Anyway, give him more Bible. <laughs> give him as much Bible as you can. And even as I quote, I think uh, I quote um, Ryle in the opening of that, that you can't give your children, I mean, he says, you can't make your kids love the Bible, but you certainly give them the Bible and you can't give it to them, you know, too young or too much. We want to get that scripture into their mind and we can answer questions on that later. But we want to then develop a, a biblical worldview. Uh, and a biblical worldview, when we think about that, if, if that's a new phrase to you, we want to be able to look at the world through the lens of Scripture. We want to look at those biblical principles and see everything that they analyze, everything that they evaluate through the lens of Scripture. And I think just like we, uh, well, we fear this in some ways, but all the things that I think that the Bible is so clear on, we need to say this is the lens through which we need to see our world. And for us, it goes back to God's authority over all things and as the creator, the personal creator, that the, the elements, that the reality, that personality, that time, space, and everything else matter has come from a personal God, not a cosmic mistake. So, of course, we're dealing from the youngest ages, thinking through the fact that there is an uncaused cause, that there is a first cause, that God is a personal first cause, and we talk about creation and evolution. Uh, they're a part of a long stream, we hope, as they come to Christ in the Church of Jesus Christ. So we want to deal with church history. We talk about it all the time. Uh, I'm going to give you a lot of resources here coming up that will help you maybe get some good materials for your kids, even your youngest kids. And then, of course, I think it's helpful in just dealing with the Christian holidays that come through you know, the, uh, the calendar. And I've got some resources for you on that. Did you want to comment on any of that? Just that you need to be, I mean, when we say get more Bible, I mean, we're talking from the very beginning. Get board books that tell the, the Bible stories. And, and don't just do the Bible stories. Make the applications to their lives. As they get older, talk about why we share our toys and things like that. But connect it with the Bible. This is why we do it. God wants us to do this, so we do this. And then, of course, 
start things like your kids probably some, most of them aren't old enough but you know things like where you're doing the DBR with them even if it's just the New Testament where you read, read it to them and you have a moment or two to talk about it and as your kids get older they can do it themselves or they can listen and you know Bible stories and teaching them on a regular basis that means every day we don't mean do this once a week we mean every day you should be reading the Bible to your children or reading a book on creation evolution church history take it takes 10 minutes a day literally Find a book and start going through it. And make sure you're doing something from this list every day. And even when they were infants, and they know, and, we, and any educator will tell you this, sociologist, anybody, anthropologist, reading to your children, mm -hmm. even before they can speak, so important. So, of course, we read the Bible to them from the time they were little. It was a great routine we got into early on, just to sit and read God's Word to our kids before they understood any of the vocabulary that we were giving them. And they learn to respect books, too. Right. I mean, our kids, you know, we only ruined one book that they ripped. Because from the very beginning, we taught them how to use books. We started with board books. But then when we got pages, we taught them how to respect books and not destroy them. Because you're doing it every day, multiple times, usually when they're little, reading to them multiple times a day. And some of my best memories I think of, I think I shared this in the pulpit not long ago or somewhere, radio, something, but is sitting together, all of us reading, and even when the youngest whether it was John when he was the youngest or Stephanie, uh, when they couldn't read at all, just to sit, we'd all have a book. And even the ones that couldn't read could sit and thumb through a book. And I think just to get them used to that quiet time, that time with an open book on their lap, uh, I just think a, the love of books, I don't think you're going to develop their mind without that. Right. So, you know, turn off the screens. Uh, and we're not opposed to the screens, but make sure you have time when the screens go off and you sit quietly and you read. All right, we can talk more about that if you have questions. Direct their hearts. That's the third one, or the second one, I mean. Direct their hearts. Uh, I want to look forward to conversion. That is what I want to do. I want to lay the groundwork for their conversion. Remember, no one can accurately say, I've always been a Christian. Hmm. That would make a good sermon title. Mm -hmm. write, write that down. Um, <laughs> That is one of the biggest misnomers uh, and myths. It's not just a misnomer. It's a myth in our culture. Uh, so I don't care how good of a family you grew up in, you're not a Christian until there's a radical breaking of your heart before God, your guilt before God, recognizing God's holiness. Well, here's the four things we always talk about. God is creator. That means he's in charge. He's holy. His rules are perfect. You don't measure up. He's just. And because you don't measure up, there will be consequences. And we talk about huge consequences because if you were to hit a kid on the playground, that's one thing. If you hit your teacher, that's another. If you hit a cop, that's another. If you hit a judge, that's another. If you hit the president, that's another. You have offended an eternal God. So God is just. There's got to be punishment. And that creates a real bleak forecast. God's in charge, creator. God's perfect. He's holy. God's just. You're going to be punished. Good news is he's loving. That's where the gospel comes in. So we don't start with God is loving Right? That's a part of the mix, obviously, but the whole point of the gospel is predicated on the fact that God is authority, God is perfect, and God is righteous and just. So we talk about those all the time. Right, and you just talk about them. You don't have to have a book for that. Right. You just talk about it all the time. Yeah, you see something happen, and you're always commenting on things, saying, look at that. What, you know, how does that make God feel? What do you think God does in those cases? What, what, how would you feel as a parent watching your kids treat each other that way? Look at how that person treated that person on that you know, whatever, that right. thing we saw at the restaurant. Right. Always talking about bringing their minds back to one of those four things. God is creator, holy, just, or loving. 
I think that's just been the paradigm for us. And you put all those together, at some point, they're going to coalesce in the heart of a child to feel that conviction when God is ready to bring them to that place, and there will be uh, conversion, Lord willing. That's our prayer, um, and your prayer too. We want to model lots of prayer. Uh, this is controversial sometimes when I say it. I don't know why, but I know you post, or your grandparents post these pictures of these little kids praying. They think it's really cute. I don't think prayer is cute. I don't think it was designed to be cute. It's not something to make us giggle or go ooh or ah. Buy a cat and take pictures of that if you want a cute moment. Uh, prayer is an important, sacred thing. Uh, it's very critical. So we don't, we, you know, we don't hold our kids up and have them pray at dinner table. We don't sit down and have our children pray. Uh, certainly when they were small, we'd say, oh, Junior, you pray now. Oh, it's so cute. To us, prayer was something we modeled. And, and we always pray, and we pray in front of them, and we lead them in prayer. And it happens about all kinds of things. You know, Carlin will get an email. Oh, let's stop and let's pray. Something will happen, or I'm going somewhere. We've got to pray for that. Prayer, 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 all the time prayer. And what we want to do, in our view, is model it. Not try to get them to go, oh, dear Jesus. That's not the point. They will learn to pray when their heart comes to a place of recognizing their need for him. And even when they are having issues that we think, you know, you need to talk to God about that, we'll say, you need to talk to God about that. Let me give you time. I'm going to get out of the room, and you talk to God about what you're feeling right now. So we model it, and we don't put them on the spot and have them perform for us, but we pray all the time. And wherever we're going, when we show up somewhere, whatever, pray, pray, pray. That's critical. Pray for people. Don't just pray for yourself. Yeah. Don't just pray for your issues. Um, you've heard us talk about our, our box, with, which is now a basket of Christmas cards. You send us a Christmas card with your picture on it. You just send us the glitter card of the church on the snow. We're going to read it after Christmas and throw it away. You send us a picture of your family. We're going to take that picture, put it in our prayer box, and we're going to pray for you. And that's just something to constantly try and teach our family. We're praying as much as we can, although it's probably not true. We pray for ourselves probably more than we should. But we want to pray as much as we can and discipline ourselves to be praying for other people. Right. And we even pray for the prayer chain. And we pray for, you know, I, someone I knew that was teaching this week. We all stopped. We were cleaning the dishes and we just all stopped and prayed for that person because we knew they were teaching right then. No, you just stop and pray all the time. And, and I, don't, I would think in our quiet times it may be about us. But when we stop our kids to pray, yeah. I would say the majority of the time it is praying for other people. You know, pray for the people on our prayer oh, chain, some people who are in surgery today for 12 hours and, you know, things like that. We're always praying for people. But the great thing is our kids get to see those answers to prayer. Because we prayed for it, we find out what happens whether God does what we want or doesn't do what we want, we still get a chance to say, look how God answered this prayer, and it grows our kids' faith. And I think sometimes you're afraid, well, this, it'll get negative, and it sometimes <laughs> will. You're always praying for people that are hurting or people that have problems. But, you know, I think I want my kid to be like Christ. Christ was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Mm -hmm. Christ would sit on Jerusalem. He wouldn't look across the, the, the valley and go, oh, that's really cool. He'd say, these are people like sheep without a shepherd. That compassion and prayer and concern for other people led to action and godliness. And that's what I want. I don't want my kid to be happy. Everybody wants to raise kids. I just want my kid to be happy. I don't want my kid to be happy. Yeah. He can be happy, cannot be happy. It doesn't matter. I want to be godly. I want to make a difference in the world for Christ. There'll be some happiness along the way, maybe. But really, this isn't the time, as Tozer said, where I'm expecting happiness. This world's full of sin. I got an enemy that's attacking me. I got problems in my flesh. I got issues in this world. Happiness is for the next life. Not that I'm against happiness. I have, ha I have happy times sometimes. Not as often, maybe, as people would want. But uh, I just know that my job is not to, to make them happy. And sometimes praying so much as we do for other people, you know, it's a lot of sorrow. But 
I don't know. We, we pray like at the end of the night. I think of one prayer we pray almost every single Thursday night after we get home from Awana is not only we pray that we, well and we thank God for what happened on Thursday night, even though a lot of us are in different directions, but we'll always pray for the people that worked in the Awana ministry tonight. Pray for those people going home and as they're going to bed tonight, just you know, encourage them. So our prayers are for a lot of people that are hurting and pains and problems, but we're always trying to come back, especially at the end of the night, and end on something that is going to be, you know, I don't know, encouraging and something that is going to aim at blessing people and not just fixing the problems in the world. All right, let's talk about the third one here. We want to teach them to give. Uh, Kids are designed by their flesh, their fallen flesh, to be selfish. Uh, A lot of Orange County parents want to get as much, you know, stuff for their kids as possible. They want them to be happy. That's their stated goal. Ask the average person on the street, what do you want for your kids? They just want them to be happy. You know, so we're already wired in a way that's not going to make them generous. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Most Orange County parents are, are just focused on getting their kids to receive. So we want to teach them to give from the earliest stages, their time, their effort. The phrase I use in the pulpit, going the extra mile, staying the extra hour, spending the extra dollar. Those are the kinds of things we want to, from the very beginning, to recognize this is what it's going to be. More effort, it's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you your resources and things that you like. And for us to serve God, that's just going to be a regular part of our lives. The people you admire the most are not people that are selfish. They're not people that, want, that are in it for themselves. You admire people, and you think people that are great are people that give of themselves. So we want to create that in our home, but that's a countercultural principle. What are some of the ways we help our kids give? Well, we started from the very beginning with having them, and I know that a lot of you have seen this before, but having like, uh, we have two jars. We have two jars and a wallet. Our two jars are giving, saving, and the wallet. Some people do three jars. Not us. Our kids have jars. Yes. Sorry we have about bank that. accounts. But we they have bank have accounts. Jars. They have jars. Sorry, yeah. you're absolutely yeah. right. We have a giving, a saving, and then they get to keep what goes in their wallet. So uh, they have to, when they have their allowance, and even from the time they were, I don't know, probably four or five, we gave them uh, a few dollars. And they had to decide, what am I going to do with these few dollars? And they were expected to do certain things for those dollars, you know, like make their bed and clean up the kitchen table and help with the trash cans, those kinds of things, uh, play with their baby sister. Those were all part of being a part in the family, and they got allowance. So they gave some to God, put it in the jar. They saved some, and Mike was very generous father. And when they'd save, um, number one, we always talked about them buying a car, from the time they were tiny, they were saving to buy a car, which now has come to fruition in two of their lives. But he would double whatever was in the savings jar. That was their reward. If you save, and they both boys would put it in, and Steph does too, then he would take that, I don't know, every couple months he'd empty the jar, and each child would get double that in their personal savings account, which is for a car someday. And uh, so, and then they could keep what was left over after that. Yeah, the banking on, the, on their counters there, their dressers, right, they couldn't touch the savings account. I had access to that, and I would only have them put money in it, and I would double what was ever in their jar. Right. But to never touch that and never let that, ever put any money, take any money out, by the time they're 16 and ready to buy a car, they've got money to buy a car. I mean, they're not buying a Tesla or anything, but they, they can buy an old Civic or whatever, right. and they can afford it. So get them to save and of course giving is the most important thing they're right. giving to themselves when they put it in the savings jar but we want them to give the saint nicholas thing we do at christmas yep. taught them to give as well we give them a lot of money and and more than they would 
you know, we'd give them more than their allowance and they'd have to spend that on someone else. So we're just trying to get them to give, but not just money, it's effort and time, right? Go the extra mile, that's effort. Stay the extra hour, that's gonna cost you time uh, and, and spend the extra dollar. And we're gonna come back to that. We're gonna that come back to that, point. yeah, you're right. Okay, um, we wanna develop them socially. My mm -hmm. kids heart socially. They're gonna have to interact with people. We'll talk about um, other things related to their lives that may sound like social things, but I want them to have the right heart toward people. Uh, part of that comes from giving when I teach them to give, which means if there's a need, we stay the extra hour if we have to. Um, but we want to get them to get out of that selfish mode. And even from the time they're really tiny, and I know you deal with this, mine, mine, mine. You yes. know, we want to break that as soon as we can. And, and, and we're not communists or socialists or anything. Right. We realize there's a place for mine, but we want to help them to get past that inbred selfishness. We didn't, we didn't actually... We stopped them when they said mine and grabbed a toy, and we told them they, it, they were ours and that they had to share their toys. So we did not let them say mine all the time. If it was their birthday present, they got to play with it first, but it's our toy. It's now part of our family's stuff. So um, things like that. Also, we tried to teach them how to interact with others better. Think of other people instead of yourself. And, uh, you know, like when we go on a park date, it was like, okay, now, all the kids are going to want to go down the slide. How are we going to handle that? You know, give them a little pep talk before. And talk it through before you get yeah. there. Yeah, have them role play. Pretend you're, you know, Billy wants to go on the slide and you want to go on the slide. What are you going to do? You know, and what, what would Jesus do? And, and we would talk about how he, you know, we would wait. We would take turns. We wouldn't push. We would, you know, so we'd set them up for success because we just role played or talked about it and prayed about it before they stepped out of the door. So of the car or whatever you were doing. So teaching them to think of others before themselves. Um, another thing we really tried to help them with was let the mouth of another praise you and not your own lips. That was one of our favorite verses because kids, just like adults, love to talk about themselves and love to talk about how great they are. And so that would be a quick and easy verse that we would constantly be saying, and I wish I had the reference right here in front of me. Thank you very much. Um, anyway, let the mouth of another praise you. So when one of our kids was boasting, we would stop them and say that, and then that was all we did. I mean, we didn't have to go on. It would be like that kid would stop talking, and then we'd go on with the conversation, and we might have his parent be able to come back around and say, oh, by the way, I noticed you doing that today. That was great when you did that, and compliment them for something. Um, another thing we talked about is not interrupting. It's rude. You know, kids need to learn to interact even at the dinner table without interrupting each other. It's all about myself. When I'm interrupting someone else, it's because I'm purely selfish. And I want to talk, and what I have to say is more important than you. That's what we're doing. So we tried to help them even with that as we'd interact with one another. Um, now, obviously, none of us are perfect. I interrupt. I, I, I would readily say that's something I still work on today. My kids interrupt. But we're trying to work on those skills as a general rule. Um, even forgiving other people. You know, stuff happens all the time, whether it's at school or church or whatever, and someone gets their feelings hurt. We don't march over to that parent and say, your kid was mean to mine. And we don't tell our kids, hey, yeah, you should hold a grudge against that person. We talk to them a lot about forgiving, letting it go. How can you be a friend to that person instead of hanging on to that thing? You know, maybe they're not going to be your best friend, but figure out how you can interact with them. So socially... The reference on that, by the way, Proverbs 27, 2. Okay, 
Let the mouth of another praise you and not your own. And then respect was a whole nother thing. We really worked on heavily respecting adults in particular. And even from the time they were tiny and they wanted to hide behind your skirt, part of respecting a person is coming out from behind the skirt, looking at the adult in the eyes and answering their questions directly. And we would role play that at home. And if we went to church and they didn't do that, we would warn them about it at home and then we would actually follow through and have some discipline, some consequence, because they had to be trained to be respectful like that. But someday, I trust that when my sons are sitting there and being interviewed for a job, that they'll actually be able to look at the interviewer and answer their questions directly and articulately because we've taught them to speak to adults and respectfully answer them without cowering. So it's that's, training. That's one of the uh, analogies we used often as kids. If you can't deal with kids in the nursery that you're in there with or your class, you're going to have coworkers one day you won't like. Not that I have any that I don't like, but you might have some you don't like. Um, I especially like Mike Elliott. Um, but I want them to know you're not going to be able to get rid of just everybody you don't like. Yep. Mommy can't come and rescue you from your office because you don't like the guy that's in the next cubicle. And then I always talked about the, when you talk to adults, you remember you have to talk to bosses yep. and managers and supervisors. I want you to be able to learn respect for them and to speak to them. So we'd always make the analogies. It's like the car. From the time they were little, we're always talking about them becoming adults. And, and though I know Orange County parents want to keep their kids, you know, uh, emasculated and, and tiny and, you know, we don't want Junior to leave us. We recognize Psalm 127 is to shoot our kids into the world like a warrior with arrows. We recognize we got to get them into the world to make a difference for Christ. This is a temporary relationship. I know that's, that's heresy for Orange County parents. This is the permanent relationship. The relationship with our kids is supposed to at one point be severed and joined to their own wife. So that's temporary. So we're heading toward a divorce with our children. See, that's what we want them to recognize. You're not going to be here anymore. We talk about college. We talk about going off and going away and getting your own family. And we did that from the time they were yep. little. And social development was a big part of that. And we would often roll the clock forward and say, you know, when you're this old and you've got a coworker or you're this old and you've got a neighbor that lives next to you, you can't change those things. Mommy can't rush in and solve it. So we need to solve those things in a, in a, a good way. Yep. We're out of All time, right. but we need to get through this last yep, section. Yeah, the last section. We're supposed to get to questions here soon. Your kid's body. Uh, the changing kid's body. Well, when we, start, when we talk about their lives, we've got physical habits. We're physical creatures. We've got to eat. We've got to sleep. We've got routines. We've got schedules. We've got chores. Uh, you know, there's things they've got to learn. And so we're always working on trying to get them in some very consistent patterns. I don't know what you want to say about that. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we assume that, but not everyone here is into patterns and routines. If you're not into patterns and routines and it's not part of your personality, I would strongly urge you for the sake of your children and their future spouse, their future boss, their future, you know, whatever bank that owns their mortgage, uh, you need to help them learn to develop patterns, even if it's not your strength. You need to have a regular bedtime. I mean, I know I said five minutes, but five minutes here and there is okay to be late, but they need to have a regular bedtime. They need to have a regular time when they get up. They need to have regular exercise. You know, I'm not the health guru. I know some of you are, and that's great. But even just making sure your child has a fruit or a vegetable at every meal would be a good start for some of us. You know, they do need to have these good health patterns. Even stuff like, you know, when they got in school, when they were upper elementary, we would make them set an alarm, and they have to come down on their own 
Mommy doesn't go wake them up. These patterns are really good for them. They need to be on time. When you say, be downstairs now, we're leaving, they need to be down there. Those patterns are going to help them to be productive adults. And again, Mike was so right. Think of where your child is today and extrapolate whether the good or the bad behavior. Think of them being an adult and having that same behavior. But now it's a pattern that's ingrained in them. So and, and Proverbs, think about now. Proverbs helps us think that way. I think it's Proverbs 11 that says, even a child is known by his behavior, whether his behavior is good and righteous or righteous and pure, however the ESV translates it. So the scripture's trying to say, even when they're young, they've got this pattern. And you've got to develop that. And we, we don't do that enough. We don't futurize enough, I think, right. with our kids. One thing I think it's good to say at this particular point if you have boys, don't sissify your boys. Mm. Uh, don't be helicopter parents with your boys. If your boy, as I jokingly said to someone Sunday, has not been to the ER in his childhood, you're probably not a good parent. Uh, you've got to let them fall down. You've got to let them get their stitches. You've got to let them be boys, especially boys. You've got to give mm. them that time to run. What we said every day, they've got to sweat every day. Yep. We've got to have our kids sweat every day. So get out there and run and do something. And I know when we were kids, of course, we were out all the time. Today, these kids never leave the house in part because their parents are petrified they're going to get picked up by some pervert in a van. But you do understand the chances of your kid getting picked up by a pervert in a van is less than when you were a kid. You know that. Statistically, look it up. It's less today than it was when we were children. And it's all just I'm, that you know about it now and you well, didn't yeah. know about it then. Right. But all I'm telling you is uh, there are times when we have to recognize raising kids will do great damage to our kids, particularly our boys, when we don't give them uh, some freedom to, to run around. And one last thing I have to say on this with the habits and the schedules, you know, if you want to do less discipline, less of the first half of the message we gave you, make sure you take your kids out and they play and sweat at least once a day. They need to play at the park in the cul-de-sac. They need to even fall down and, you know, fall off their skateboard. I mean, they need to sweat in order to um, be able to sleep well in order to even listen to you when you're telling them what the rules are and what they're doing right or wrong. If your kids aren't out doing exercise, I hate to say it, but that's partially your fault that you're having to discipline them so much. Let them go out and play. Get their bodies in church, let her be. They got to be there. They got to be a part of it. It's a priority. It's the bride of Christ. It's a, it's a priority. And I'm saying that, I know you'll write off a lot of what I say in this section because I work for the church and I'm a pastor, but you know, really, it shouldn't matter what your role in the church is. This is the priority. Uh, and time invested in the church is critically important, more important than Little League, more important than soccer. Uh, and what's great about our church is we've got three services. And, and while we did have to miss some things with their teams or whatever because of church, it didn't happen that often because we had three services and we just said, you gotta, you got to be in one of them. So, and as they got older, of course, they needed to be in two of them because from the time they hit junior high, we want them in the main service, right. sitting you know, in the service through the sermon, and then we want them also in their, their, their ministry, which is the narrow here in junior high. So you know, they've got to be in church. When they got old enough in junior high, they had to be in both services, their own service and our service. Um, and so you just got to make it a priority. When it comes down to it, your kid's probably not going to be uh, you know, professional athlete. So you give up on that dream early and recognize they can still be good uh, if they don't, you know, make everything that they could make. Because summer camp's going to come before this, and, you know, winter retreat's going to come before that. And you just got to get their bodies in church. Want to say anything about that? I talked about that last week.
Yes. Make ministry mandatory. It's not just coming and sitting there, which is important. I want them to be participants in the church, but I, I want them to actually do ministry. You got to do something. And if you start this early enough, you won't have to keep at it. They'll want to do it. Yep. And they'll catch the bug and they'll recognize. Going the extra mile, staying the extra hour, and spending the extra dollar to do something good for Christ and his bride, they'll fall in love with that. They'll find a niche and they'll do it. Yep. So just get them started early. Uh, this is what Philippians 2 is all about, right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But you know, we want to give of ourselves like Christ did who left heaven's throne to serve us. So we want them to always be doing ministry of some kind. And the only thing I would say with that is, you know, it's um, something like everything else in our lives that's more caught than taught. Yeah. You know, you tell them to go serve. Uh, that's one thing. They see you serve. You want to raise servants? Let them see you serve. And let them see you serve sacrificially. And to do it even when you're tired. And to show up when you're sick. And to do it when, you know, as Psalm 15 says, swear to your own hurt and do not change. In other words, be faithful to the ministry that you've been called to. When your kids see you do that, they will want to serve. A lot of people though, be like you. don't want to raise servants. But I, all well, I've got to say is, so. if you want a consumer and you think yeah. that's what you're going to create as a consumer, have all these things, I'm just telling you, it's just the opposite. Jesus was right. Better to give mm -hmm. than to receive. You can't outgive God. I was thinking of that. We talk about our kids giving. Well, they finally got old enough to where they give and they get their own you know, giving record at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And of course, part of the accountability as mom and dad is, I want to see your giving receipt at the end of the year, okay? Um, and so... Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. How would you like Pastor Mike asking you? Your... Right. I've thought about and that. And he's dad. <laughs> yeah. But they have to come in and give me their giving yep. receipt at the end of the year, or the beginning of the year from the last year. And I'll tell you what, and again, I'm past the time of telling them what they got to give, right? They're giving, they make those own decisions on their own, but... I look at their giving receipt, and the one that gives the most sacrificially, then I pull up his PayPal account, and I realize he's got the most in his account. And yeah. I just recognize every time someone gives and serves, God gives them back. And I'm not Joel Olstein here. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. you can't outgive God. Yeah, you true. make servants, and they're going to be the kinds of Christians you want. It's yeah. the crotchety old consumer in the church you don't want to create your kid to be because they're never happy. They're never fulfilled. God's going to give to us through our creating servants in our home. All right, we're going to take questions now as the microphones go around. Oh, they're going to put them on the screen. Oh, they're, you're going to put them up there. Oh, oh these okay. are texted, is that it? Because you got that cool L.A. cell phone area code. So I thought of that the other day when I texted you, Mike. What's with that? Why wow. don't you get a nine, the coolest area code of all, 949? What's wrong with you? L.A. kid, well, okay. there are churches up there in L.A. <laughs> Maybe he'll plant one and he won't have to change his cell phone. His cell no, phone we're not number. gonna let him plant that far away. Oh, okay. All right, that's the questions. Pick one. Oh, wow. I can have to read, pick. Can pick. you read that? Yes. There we go. What if your child throws a big tantrum in public? What do you mean, if? Yeah, you, when? The question you mean, when your child throws a big tantrum in public, throwing himself on the floor and screaming, how do you handle that in the moment and then in private? Yeah. I think we kind of answered that already, but it did happen at SeaWorld uh, to me once. And, and I um, wasn't even there at that And he one. wasn't there. But again, it doesn't happen very often because we didn't let it. The minute they threw themselves on the ground in your carpeted floor at home, 
they got disciplined for it, and so we didn't have it happen. But one time it did happen in public, and um, there was no consoling them at that moment. It was a total freak-out meltdown, this one actually out of, very, out of character tantrum, and I just had to hold him, and I had to take him to the private bathroom. And uh, praise the Lord, there was a big, giant fan in that, blasting in that bathroom, and so we got to have a talk and some discipline under the big giant loud fan. And then we did it and I took him out and it was over. But again, that's because every time it happened at home, fling, you know, there was a consequence. So yeah, we did it. If you catch it early enough, this is the thing. You know that if it happens later or in public, there's probably something else yeah, wrong. It was he's sick very or bizarre. she's got a, you know, whatever. There's, so, you know, you gotta deal with it early and you gotta deal with it yeah. at home. But it does happen in public, and when you do, you do the best you can. Scoop them up, take them put them in the van, somewhere. Take, take them somewhere. All right, the world would say that spanking is child abuse. They'd also say homosexuality is really cool and nifty. I just thought I'd add that. Um, is that true? How should we best reply if and when this is confronted? Get used to this, man. If you want to be affirmed by the world, it's over. You might as well check out now. Because it's only going to get worse. Hmm. It's only going to get worse. You hear that case going on in San Francisco where the city council is trying to get the Catholic churches not to teach Catholic ethics in their schools. This is Catholic schools can now not teach Catholic ethics in their own schools. If you don't think that's going to come to Orange County churches, it is. And I'm just telling you, the world is not going to approve what we believe. Hmm. Spanking is not child abuse. And at least right now, uh, how I've proved that. I remember sitting in a counseling session one time with parents that had kids out of control. They were young enough, and I said, you need to spank them. And I taught them how to do it, never out of anger, never uncontrolled, always measured. You know how many before you do it. You hug them, and it's over. You, they get your apology. You apologize. You, you leave the room at peace. I gave them the method of how to do it. They said, no, it's child abuse. I picked up the phone in the counseling session, and I said, I'm going to call the sheriff's department. And I didn't know who I was going to get, right? Uh, and it wasn't Heather Gilmore. Uh, <laughs> I didn't call 911, but I, did, I called the, the office and I just said, hey, I, I'm, I'm a pastor here. I've got a couple in my counseling and they, they tell me they, they're not going to spank their kids because uh, they think it's illegal and it's a child abuse. I got the perfect guy. The guy working the desk that day, oh, ha, 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 illegal. Man, it should be illegal not to. He said, he said, if you guys would start spanking your children, they wouldn't end up here. He was perfect. I mean, this gal thought for sure it was a plant. Um, but I know the law, and I know it's not illegal. And people can say, you know, abuse, abuse, is, abuse is when you feel bad, right, for a lot of people. Now, I know there is abuse, right? There are people tying people up in basements and hanging them by their toes. I get that. But the re I get that. I realize I just said that. Half the room is going, what are they talking about? I just, this is a new revelation for me that I say I get that. But I do get that, that there are people being... You know, it was this group that answered those questions, by the way. Was that on the list? Yes. But it came of up on the list? Of course it was. Oh, yeah. Of yes, course. that's why it became this big thing. When it came up at the marriage retreat and it said phrases that Pastor Mike says, and I get that, was I got, I got the other ones. <laughs> I, re I realized the, the veracity of the others. But when that one came up and it said, I get that, I leaned over to Carlin in the middle of the session. I go, what are they talking about? <laughs> do I really say that? 
And she laughed at me. I said, of course you do. I know there is abuse, and I realize there is abuse. But uh, spanking your child, lovingly measured, right. not out of anger, not leaving welts and marks and all that is not illegal. And spanking actually does become ineffective, too. And you have to start, you know, dessert, bedtime, take your phone. I mean, there's, there's various things. Sure. And you know what else I but think is abuse? But not when they're little. Usually when they're little, spanking's effective. Yeah. Abuse <laughs> is a word that is like the end of all arguments comes whenever we say something yeah. is abuse. It's abuse when people don't, are not counseled by pastors that they get to do what they want, right? The person doesn't get along in their marriage and say, can we get divorced? And say, well, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, well, that's, a, that's abuse. Right? Or a person comes in and says, I got homosexual, same-sex attraction. I want to you know, act on this. We say, no, the Bible says, no, it's abuse. It's like the guy who wants to have an affair. He wants to bed down every girl on the street. Well, no, you can't. Well, to them, they can claim abuse too. It's whenever the culture says, you know what, you should let people do what they want to do. And, and I'm just telling you, spanking, you, you can call it whatever you want, and the world's going to call it whatever they want, and they may outlaw it one day. That's fine. But we're not running our lives by Dr. Laura or... Dr. Phil or anybody else, we're doing it according to the word of God. And it says that when they are young, right? I'm not talking about, you know, spanking your teenager, but when they are little, applying some pain in their lives is a consequence and a connection to their moral behavior is exactly what you need to do. And if you spare that Shabbat, Bible says you must not like your kid very much. All right. All right. If kid. you aren't happy with your kid's friends, how hard a line do you draw? Well, I would say, how, how unhappy are you with your kids' friends? That would determine how hard I draw that, draw that line. If you draw a hard line, if I really don't like the kid, doesn't that make your child desire the friendship? Well, if I tell them that don't, don't snort Coke, won't that make them want to snort more of it? I mean, I don't know. At some point, it's saying <laughs> that logic to me is like, if, if I really think this kid is bad news, don't hang out with that kid then I'm going to say, you can't hang out with that kid. Won't that make them want it more? Maybe. I don't know. But don't do it, and there'll be consequences. And the thing I realize about my kids, especially as they get older with friends, I know they can go to church and hang out with whoever they want to, and I can't see them all the time. You've got to realize that what you do with your children in terms of prohibitions and exhortations, correction and direction, is something you only get to get involved in when you see it. And the older they get, you see less of it. So I always remind my kids that you're ultimately going to deal with God. God is the ultimate disciplinarian. You can pull one over on me, you can pull one over on your mother, but here's something, ha, 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 you can't pull one over on God. And you can do whatever you want behind the back darkened part of the, of the church campus, and I'll never see it. But God sees everything in living color. And his paddle is a whole lot bigger than mine. So... You want to hope that I catch you doing wrong so that he doesn't. That's the whole point. I'm sparing my child from God's paddle. Right. So, uh, you know, I realize that. And that's why we had a little joke in our family. Whenever someone would get hurt, now this sounds really cruel. I know you think we're Nazi parents already. But we would, we would often say, well, there's a divine spanking for you. Oh, right? it happens all the time. They mouth off to you and then they slip. You're like. Yeah, but yep. even when they get hurt and we don't see it. And I'll say, there's, there's a divine spanking. They go, for what? And I said, something I don't know about. <laughs> right? Something I don't know about. But clearly you got away with something I didn't see. So I would and say... And we get those too, right? Don't we? And here's the other thing. How unhappy would I be? I hope I've trained my kids at a young enough age yeah. to make some decisions about friends 
that I'm going to say I'm not going to be super strict on that uh, until I see the damage in their own lives. And I'm saying, hopefully you know well enough to sort out who you're going to hang out with. And, and they've taught some wisdom to my kids where they'll make those own decisions. But I really, really think if you did a lot of this discipline when they were younger, they wouldn't make as many choices as you're afraid they're going to make as they get older. I mean, yeah, it's just not going to happen. They're going to know your expectations, and they're not going to have their best friends be people who hate God when they get to be teenagers. If, they're, if they've followed along the path and you've taught them the, the Bible and you've prayed with them, they're going to, most of the time, not every time, they're going to make better choices if, if you, you start young. If you see the effect of those things, right, then you point that out. You say, you're going to be disciplined for the effect of that. Now, where did you learn that? Or how did, where did you get that idea? Right. And then you can start ferreting out their friends. But you can't control everything they do, you know. Well, that's something you've got to re realize early in their life because you really can't control everything they Obviously. do. Obviously. And now they're, ours are to the point we really can't control everything we do, and they need to be making decisions on their own and reaping whatever the consequences are Right. because they're almost adults. Well, one of them is an adult. What do you do if your child doesn't want to hug you after being spanked and hold a grudge? Again, that's the thing. I, I want them to be authentic. Now, I'm not going to set up an impossible standard where if they're really frustrated over the discipline, I'm demanding right now an authentic reconciliation. It may take some time. And oftentimes we would let them somehow simmer either before the spanking or even after the spanking, usually before, so that we can get to an authentic reconciliation at the end of it. And you know, I'm not gonna go hug my kid if they're still stewing over the problem. I'm gonna give them some space. They're human beings. They need sometimes to work through some of it. But I will not let them just parrot words. I don't want that. I don't even want a false hug at the end of it, you know? I just want you to make sure we've worked through the problem. And that sometimes takes time.